Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today's episode of Audacious is not appropriate for children or for those who are particularly sensitive to the topic of sexual assault. You've maybe heard the saying, hurt people hurt people. But what makes a person want to hurt to sexually abuse a child? Hear from a man who did just that and spent seven years in prison. Today, he's the author of The Parent's Guide to Protecting Children from Pedophiles. I really want to expose what we do. We commit heinous offenses, unconscionable acts against children. And where do we go for help before we act out? And you'll hear from the president of the Connecticut Association for the Treatment of Sexual Offenders about effective treatment and the flaws she sees in the sex offender registry. Plus, how to protect your children. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Imagine you're with a couple friends watching the news and the anchor says something about the arrest of a local man who sexually assaulted a child. What do you feel? Maybe disgust, horror, anger. Your friends may say, lock him up and throw away the key. I wish he'd really suffer. Maybe you wouldn't really care if horrible, horrible things happened to that guy. For many of us, abusing a small, innocent child is the ultimate crime, true evil. Today, we're going to talk about pedophilia. It's a difficult conversation, one that's taboo, it's uncomfortable, and some might say not worth having on the air. But if we better understand the disorder of pedophilia, if we can better treat it, then won't fewer children be harmed? One study from the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health says that the stigma associated with pedophilia may interfere with attempts to prevent sexual offending, like seeking therapy. Right now, one in four girls and one in 13 boys are sexually abused before the age of 18. And more than 90% of those victims know their perpetrator in some way. That's according to the CDC. And while it's impossible to tell exactly how widespread pedophilia is, estimates range from about 1% to 5% of the male population, although not all act on those impulses. This hour, how we view people who are pedophiles and why, in so many cases, treatment only exists after they've been arrested. And It's a difficult show to listen to, and I'm going to hop in now and then to remind you, because today... You're going to meet Marty. That's not his real name. Marty spent seven years in jail for the sexual abuse of a child. He wrote a book called The Parent's Guide to Protecting Children from Pedophiles. He says his interest now is in protecting children, not hurting them. You'll also meet the president of the Connecticut Association for the Treatment of Sexual Offenders, Eileen Redden. She's been working with people like Marty for over 20 years, trying to understand why. 
tracing the patterns, identifying flaws in the system that just make things worse, and advocating for ways to protect everyone from this kind of harm. So if this is not the episode for you, come back next week. No hard feelings. But if the idea of this show challenges you in a way you can withstand, let's see what happens. This is the part where I'd tell you where Marty lives, but he's understandably not revealing that. I asked him when he remembers first acknowledging his attraction to children. I'm trying to remember if I was 15 or 16, and I had some little cousins that I really loved, little girls, and I would go over there and visit them, and little girls would climb up on my lap, and I would get aroused, and it freaked me out, and I didn't know why I was aroused. So I told the, the therapist, I said, you know, I, I'm really worried. I, I don't want this to happen. And I told him that I got aroused and he reacted. I don't know the word for it, shocked, uh, uh, furious. And I remember he saying, if you're a pedophile, I can't help you. I can't treat you. You're not treatable. Well, I didn't know what the word pedophile was. I had no idea, but I was terrified. Oh, no, I'm not that. Oh, no, no. He said, well, then we won't discuss this again. Don't bring it up. This was 1958. They didn't have a clue back then about sex offending or impulses or nobody even talked about getting molested, let alone any sexual content. So whatever his reaction was, was based on his training and education. That wasn't his fault, okay? It was the era in which I was raised and nobody, you know, there was no treatment. There was no such thing. Freud talked about, and Freud was right. He mentioned trauma. That's what his original theory was. Anyway, get off on that. You mentioned trauma. Were you hurt? Oh, I was raped uh, as a child. My son, I didn't have any memories of my father raping me. I had no memories. I blocked it out. And that's the reason I was in therapy for so many years, was I was acting out. And I didn't know why. What's wrong with me? Well, I blocked out the memories, and that was that. So when my son was born, I was triggered, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was drinking. I was depressed. I was going into violent rages. I was breaking things. I didn't know why. So I had a couple of therapists suspect now, this is in uh, late 1990s. People were starting to learn about it. They suspected I'd been abused. And I said, but it's not possible. I have no memory of it. So what happened is uh, I went to a workshop. I'm a therapist, clinical therapist. So I went to a workshop by David Caleb. And he was talking about the borderline personality disorder and repressed memories. And he was going on about how kids are molested and they don't know. And this is in my book. They don't know. They say, no, Uncle Charlie never touched me. I swear to you, he never touched me. No, he didn't. But it was Froggy who touched him. And when you're dealing with little kids, okay, you can get away with all kinds of psychotic, sick things. And you put, well, I don't want to go into it. I don't want to tell you how it was done. But when you tell a kid, hey, look, this is the dolly that's touching you, 
Oh, it is the dolly. It's not Uncle Charlie. I'll give you that much. So when you're interviewing your child, you don't know what you're talking about. You get yourself somebody who does. Because you say that Uncle Charlie touched you, and I swear to God, he never did. But it was a dolly, and you have to know how to ask questions. Did anything ever touch you? Oh, well, the dolly. And when you find a professional provider, you better interrogate them like you're a police detective. Because a lot of them say, oh, I know how to deal with kids that are sexually abused. Really, where'd you get it? Off YouTube? I'm serious. You're paying, you're hiring us. And you have every right in the world to interrogate us. You had mentioned that when you found out you were going to be a father, you were triggered. Was it because you worried you would hurt your kid? I had flashbacks and I had urges and I had impulses and I thought I was going crazy and I didn't want to hurt my kid. So I got into therapy with a guy that actually knew what he was doing. He worked for Child Protective Services and he knew his stuff. And so he did some um, EMDR, you know, that eye movement stuff. It works. And my impulses were dulled, and I was able to hone them in, and I was good. Now, eventually, I went to a hypnotherapist. We, oh, well, that doesn't count. Hypnosis doesn't count, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay, fine, it counts. And I began to get images, shadowy images. That's how the stuff comes back. And when I stopped going to her, Things came back with David Kellogg when he said, this is how it's done. And I was in San Francisco in the middle of the workshop. I was not under hypnosis. And he said, this is how they do it. And they trick the kid into thinking it's someone else. And I blacked out right in the middle of the workshop. All my memories came back. My father would go into a closet and come out. Wake me up. I was five years old and say, who am I? So you're my daddy. He said, no, I'm not. You think I'm your daddy, but I'm someone else. So of course my daddy didn't do it. It was someone else. To this day, I still have to struggle with it was really my father. That's how deep this stuff goes. At some point you did offend. Oh, yeah. What do you feel comfortable saying about what it was like for you? Maybe some, just some understanding as to like, what was going on in your head? What was going into my head was, I'm not hurting her. I'm being gentle. This is sick people. This is sick. And this is how untreated offenders think. So if you want to vomit and put a bullet through my head, I completely understand it. I actually feel the same way when I hear about it. We are in so much denial, we also dissociate. If you want to know what it's like to go into our mind space, watch the original Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And there I am, and Mr. Hyde, all of us and Mr. Hyde. That's us. We dissociate, we go into a state of almost euphoria, and we 
go into, uh, I have to say a different personality. Are we aware of it? Yeah. Do we care? No. And we justify and excuse and we bargain and say things like, oh, I won't do it again. I'll just do it a little bit. Then when we're done, we feel horribly guilty and we go into what's called a pretend normal stage, which is I'm going to be a nice guy. I'll take my kid to dinner. I'll buy my wife a gift. I feel better. I'm all better. I'll never do it again. Then we start building up and we start fantasizing. And of course, we repeat. And then we hate ourselves and we feel enormous shame. Enormous. We don't want to do it again. And there is nowhere to go for help. At the time one is offending, at the time I was offending, it is an act of the most extreme narcissism and selfishness on God's green earth. I could have cared less about my victim. For you victims, it is not and never has been about you. It has never, ever, ever been about you. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And I know my victim blames herself. I don't know if she still does to this day. We talked about it. She said, if I hadn't been born, it wouldn't have happened. It's my fault. It's not your fault. I would have molested someone else. It doesn't matter. It's not about you. You're convenient. You were there. Opportunity advantage. It's not your fault. I don't care what was told you. You looked like your mother. You looked like your father. So what? I just needed to say that. So I'm all for helping victims. I want to stop children from being abused. That's my goal in life. I don't want to see another child ever hurt. You're listening to my conversation with Marty. He's the author of The Parent's Guide to Protecting Children from Pedophiles. He spent seven years in prison for abusing a child. This show is not appropriate for young children or people sensitive to this topic. When did you turn away from indulging in these impulses and towards helping other people? What happened? I was in the middle of of molesting a child. And she said, stop. And Mr. Hyde snapped out of it. I came right out of the zone, right out of it. Bam! And I ran to the internet and I found a hospital in Arizona that treated offenders. So I checked into the hospital. Of course, they reported me, which was fine and actually a blessing. And I went to prison for seven years. And during that time, I was so fortunate to go to prison. God, I thank you for sending me to prison. I got into the five-year sex offender treatment program. And that was the only thing that was available and still remains available. So again, where's the treatment? Prison is the only place that you're going to get it. After you got out of prison, you went on to write a book, The Parent's Guide to Protecting Children from Pedophiles. Why did you write that book? Well, I started writing it. It was in the program. And the guys came up and volunteered. We wanted to be in your book. I said, you're in it. Now, some of them weren't pleased, probably, <laughs> with what I wrote about them. <laughs> but... Uh, 
most of them really want help. They were good people. They're good people. You know, you can identify us as pedophiles, as whatever you want, but that's not who we are. We're not labels. People with diabetics call themselves diabetics. They're not diabetics. They're people with diabetes. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a son. I'm a member of the community. I'm an author. And I have a disorder of pedophilia. Now, that's a whole different thing to seeing us as human beings. And I think it's important. Any more than you're a victim. No, you're a daughter, you're a, a wife, you're a mother, you're whatever. And you happen to be a victim as well. And that makes it a whole different thing. That changes everything about how we identify ourselves. So I started writing the book. And I got pretty excited because... At the time I wrote the book, there was nothing out there that was written by anybody that knew what was going on. And as a clinical therapist, and as a survivor of being abused, and as an offender, man, I'll tell you what, that book's got it all. And I wanted to put it out there. I'd give it away. If somebody doesn't have the money, call me. I'll give it to you. And that's my motivation. I want to get it out there. All the secrets are out there. What my father did to me is in the book. And that's my motivation. I, I really want to expose what we do. We commit heinous offenses. Unconscionable acts against children. And where do we go for help before we act out? I've seen this guy once a week. And I couldn't afford to see him anymore. I couldn't afford him actually. Once he helped me out, I, 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 how, insurance at that time was $24,000 a year, which that is cheap. And I had a co-payment and, and I, come on. I needed to see him four days a week. And even that is minimal because you need residential for about four years just to get stable. We're talking with Marty. That's his pseudonym. And he's the author of The Parent's Guide to Protecting Children from Pedophiles. He spent seven years in prison for sexual abuse of a child. And it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. This show is not appropriate for young listeners or for people who are particularly sensitive to this issue. When we get back. I want us to be detectives. So whenever anybody says anything to you, I want you to tell me about it. And let's see if we can figure out if it's a good guy or bad guy. This is what you have to do. You have to become an ally with your child. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today's program is about the very difficult and sensitive subject of child sexual abuse, and it may not be appropriate for all listeners. We're talking with a man who has pedophilia. He goes by the name Marty, which is a pseudonym, and after spending seven years in prison, he wrote a book, The Parent's Guide to Protecting Children from Pedophiles. Later, you'll meet Eileen Redden. She's the president of the Connecticut Association for the Treatment of Sexual Offenders, and she answers a lot of questions about why people like Marty feel the way they do, what parents can look for 
and their children in case of abuse, and why she thinks the sex offender registry is due for an overhaul. I asked Marty, as someone who's abused children, what are some signs that a child may be getting hurt? What should parents be looking for? Pre-sexualized actions, going beyond playing doctor, um, acting out with other kids. Um, some of that is normal, sexual exploration. Some of it is not. Early uh, going back to bedwetting, uh, cruelty to animals. What does bedwetting have to do with it? They revert back to an early stage where they felt safe. And so they're going to lose their gains over their physical bodies, and they're going to just lose a lot of ways. Some of them go back to thumb sucking. They're going to revert. Say, why is my child acting too again? Anger, rage. Boys act out. Girls act in. Uh, girls will cut. They'll um, go lose weight. They'll think they're or gain weight. They'll think they're fat. They'll think they're ugly. They'll shy away suddenly from the offender. They won't sit in the same car. They'll act out. They want. They want to be alone. Their grades will drop. And I imagine it's tough as a parent too, because a lot of this sounds just like a teenager. Like <laughs> that's a teenager, but that's not every teenager. And it's not if if your child is. If your teenager is cutting themselves and is does have an eating disorder, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've been abused, but there may be a line. No. I want to ask about online predators, people who connect with young kids online. They make plans to meet up with them, and then they sexually assault them. What can parents do about that? The only way that you're going to protect your children from them is to possibly be very imaginative and creative. So what you do is you have to play detective or come up with a real cool plan. And you say, hey, look, kids, here's my idea. I want you to join me. Now, this idea may stink, but it may work. It's the only way you're going to have it happen is to collude with your child and make him or her partner in crime. I want us to be detectives. When you're in the internet, I want you and me to see what's going on because a lot of bad people are out there. So whenever anybody says anything to you, I want you to tell me about it. And let's see if we can figure out if it's a good guy or bad guy. Team up. Now we have a game. There's an us. And we're going to see if we can catch bad guys. So you come and tell me what's happening. And you tell your friends, too, and maybe they'll figure out who's good and bad. Let's make it into a game. That's the only way you're going to get this done. Or figure out another plan that works for you and your kid. This is what you have to do. You have to become an ally with your child. Let's work together on keeping the family safe. What does it mean to be on the sex registry? What does it mean for you in terms of where you can go, where you can't go? How long are you on it for? How uh, Every year you have to re-register? When I was first convicted, I was going to be on the registry for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, if I was a good boy, I would get off. The registry puts my name on there so somebody can look it up and say, hey, he's a sex offender. And now I can't go to parks. I cannot live near school or daycare. And many daycares, you don't know they're in business because 
They have a license, but they just don't use it. I can't be alone with a child. What if I'm at Walmart and a kid walks into the bathroom and no one is there? Good question. I can be violent. I can be sent back to prison. I can't be with a child alone in a home if the child is out of sight from an adult. So I have to really be concerned. If you're having a party at a park, I can't go. I can't go fishing if it's a park. I can't state parks, public parks. It just goes on. Are you still attracted to kids? I can see certain older teenage girls as being very attractive. And what I do with that is before I sexualize them, I immediately tell myself, these are still children and they need me to protect them. My job is to protect them. Little kids, nah, I just see them, they're, they're just really cute. And I really want them protected and that's why I'm on the air. You're listening to my conversation with Marty. He's the author of The Parent's Guide to Protecting Children from Pedophiles. He spent seven years in prison for abusing a child. This show is not appropriate for young children or people sensitive to this topic. In a perfect world, a person, well, I guess it wouldn't be a perfect world, but I was going to say in a perfect world, a person like you is growing up, having been through what you've been through, feeling these feelings, knowing that to act upon these feelings would hurt another person, a child, and you feel stuck. So what in this better world, what resources would you have? Where would you be able to turn instead of hurting anybody? If you want to reintegrate people and see human beings as being terribly sick and full of rage, then do something healthy. Start treatment centers, and they're already in the prisons. Why not expand that? Put it in, into rehabilitation in all the states. Those are the answers we need to start looking at helping people treatment. What advice do you have for anyone who's hearing our conversation today and they are attracted to children, whether they have offended or they haven't yet? What, what can you say that they haven't already thought of? In my case, and in their cases as well, we have possibly some kind of a love map that we got is really young children, messages, who knows, who cares? It doesn't matter. You're attracted to children, period. I don't know that you're ever gonna not be attracted to children. So what you have to do, it's just like saying, gee, I'm attracted to having sex with corpses or I'm attracted to this. What are you gonna do about it? You can't act on it. You can't act as far as I wanna push people in front of a bus. So you have to find ways of not doing it. You say, oh, okay, like when I see some attractive teenagers, hey, I want to protect them. And that's what you have to, and you can only do that through good therapy. So get some help or go to prison. Because right now, those are your two options. Those are your choices. Earlier, you brought up God. Yeah. When you, if you, 
talk with God? What do you feel? In my experience, without a spiritual, not religious, but a spiritual connection, you're not going to make it. I have had spiritual experiences that saved my life in prison. I have had precognition. I have had all kinds of awakenings. And I can only go by experience and beliefs. And my experiences are real. And I rely upon those and my prayers to keep me whole and healthy. Is forgiveness ever an aspect of what you seek from that relationship? No, not at all. Um, I will never forgive myself. I refuse to. What I did was criminal and excusable. There's no forgiveness. God forgives me great things, and I don't care. I've asked everything I planned on. I can't believe it. Uh, is there anything I missed? I cannot remove the suffering that I have caused my victim. I have prayed. I have done everything in my power. I have gone to people that are mystics. I've gone to medicine people. I've gone to healers. I've gone to the spirit world beyond asking, please heal her. And I cannot do that for her. I have inflicted a wound, which now she has to heal. And although we have talked and we have paid for help and everything in our power, it is still her onus to go through the pain that I have caused her. And I'm deeply sorry for that. Again, to the victim, it's nothing you've done, nothing. I don't care if you beg for it. It's the adult's responsibility to say that's not appropriate. So you can forgive yourself of any wrongdoing. Marty, thank you for talking with me. Thank you. Marty is the author of The Parent's Guide to Protecting Children from Pedophiles. He wrote it after spending seven years in prison for the sexual abuse of a child. There is a support group for pedophiles who are committed to avoiding having sexual contact with children. It's called Virtuous Pedophiles. As of April 2021, more than 6,000 people have created accounts. We'll have a link to it on our website, ctpublic.org audacious. After the break. The recidivism rates for all people who have committed a sex crime is 4%. People have the myth in their head that if you've done it once, you'll do it again. And that is absolutely not true. What an expert in child sexual abuse thinks needs to change about the sex offender registry and why it may benefit all of us. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. 
Today, we're talking about some particularly hard stuff that isn't appropriate for young people to hear. It isn't appropriate for many people who've experienced sexual abuse as a child either, because that's the subject of our show. You just heard from Marty, the pseudonym of a man who spent seven years in prison for sexually assaulting a child. One of the tragic elements of his story for everyone involved is that he sought help before ever hurting anybody, and he couldn't find it. Where did he find it? In prison. That's not the order most of us wish help would come in. So I wanted to talk with someone who has some experience with men like Marty in prison. Eileen Redden is the president of the Connecticut Association for the Treatment of Sexual Offenders. She's been working as a therapist for sex offenders in prisons for over 20 years. I asked her to tell me, when people call her organization and they say they need help, they're attracted to children, they haven't hurt anybody yet... What happens? The person receiving the call would have to really assess the crisis. And if the person was in imminent danger, obviously it's a 911. If the person wanted to talk, teletherapy has become very common and or people going into uh, a therapist's office. It's important to realize that when someone is at a crisis state, it's usually because their life is unraveled and is completely out of control. They've, they've experienced deep emotional, psychological isolation, social isolation. They may have early trauma that they have begun addressing. And it's not the sexual behavior that's the primary motivation. It's most often the emotional, psychological distress and the isolation and the pandemic has made things much harder for a lot of people. So if someone was in crisis, obviously an, an, an immediate referral, unless it was someone who was imminently at risk. Forgive me if this is, if I should know why, but like, I hear that trauma and abuse early on in life is a common thread among people who offend people who are pedophiles, especially. Why? I think that we develop our relational and sexual templates when we're very young. And if we have been violated as a child in a sexual way, that can create kind of a a, a template or a way of seeing how sex is. And it's obviously been very, very corrupted. And the reason treatment is so effective is because that corrupted template can be corrected through treatment, through the development of appropriate relationships, through pro-social attitudes, developing, you know, protective factors like engaging in things that make people happy. You know, the thing about what makes a somebody who has been convicted of a sexual assault, the thing, the things that make their life whole and that make them better are the exact things that make our lives whole and make us feel like, you know, we live in a world that's basically worth living in. So why are so many men, and I would make this generalization, men in prison, the vast, vast, vast majority of them had terrible early life. They were marginalized from school, neglected and or abused by their parents. They are the result of the failures of society. I mean, prison is full of men and women who have been failed by families, churches, schools, communities, and all of us. And when you don't get what you need as a child, 
Anger, resentment, fear, anxiety drives your thinking and can drive your behavior. And if you're an angry, anxious kid who feels like nobody cares, so what if I rob a house? I steal a car. I hurt a kid. No one cares about me. Why should I care about anybody else? So the hurt child reflects back to society what they feel society has done to them. So treatment is really the solution to healing some of that trauma and also being accountable for what you've done. Being an angry 15-year-old is very different than when you're 25. So another big piece of treatment is accountability. So when you take responsibility for your life, you're empowered, you you feel you have choices and control over your life and your future. And that's a big piece of treatment. So if you're looking at the small slice of men who are pedophiles, one of the big pieces of that treatment is empathy. It's that children are not appropriate sexual partners. They don't want sex. And we live in a society now where people can access child porn 24-7. So they begin to they begin to think and feel if it's on the internet, then it must be okay. And if it's on the internet, then that must mean that kids really want this kind of behavior. So, you know, Nicholas Kristoff has done some great articles in the New York Times about Pornhub and how they have propagated, promulgated, and profited off of sexual abuse of kids. And they have done very little about it. So, you know, there's a collective responsibility to fight back against internet companies allowing this stuff to be, um, you know, propagated in society. And treaters are out there. There's a lot of wonderful people who treat people where the, the cornerstone of the treatment is empathy and compassion with a strong dose of accountability, responsibility, and planning for the future. You know, we have wonderful treatment tools to help people get through this and to live a pro-social and legal lifestyle. And if you looked at 100 men and women who had illegal, inappropriate sexual contact with a child, there are 100 different people. They're not the same. And in some systems, everyone is treated the same. And that's the problem with the sex offender registry is it doesn't give you the information that you need. So we have pursued a bill, SB 1113, to change the way the registry is is managed. Because if you're on the sex offender registry, imagine how it destroys your opportunity for housing, for jobs, and so on. And some of these men um, in particular, there's not that many women, because there's not that many women who get arrested for sexual assault. But there's many men who are not dangerous and should not be on the registry. And there's almost no way for them to correct that. Yeah. I mean, before you and I connected, I checked the registry and I looked at the radius around my house. And now I know that there are 815 people within five miles of me that are on this list. And I have no idea what that means. Part of me feels terrified. And I wonder should I be? What sense should I make of that list as it is now? And how would you make it different? The data has been collected all around the country and in Canada. Canada has some some of the best research and data collection in the world. And they started investing in problem sexual behavior in the 70s. And they invested a lot of money to understand it. So what the data says is that the 
people who should be on the registry who are a permanent danger in the future. How do you figure that out? So one way to assess if someone is dangerous is to continue to supervise, manage, and have them involved in some kind of programming. There are sexually dangerous people out there, but they're very, very, very rare, and they're few and far between. Um, Eric Janis is one of the leaders in this field. Mary Huffman, a judge out of Ohio, who wrote a legal document, I think in 2017, and she talked about the moral panic and that sex offender registries have been developed out of a moral panic. The data they came up with, as well as Robin Wilson, was that, you know, there's probably 15% of the people on Connecticut's registry that need to be on it. And the rest could be on a police-only registry, not something that's accessible to the public. Because I have many clients who have ended up homeless. They're underemployed or unemployed for extended periods of time because when their name comes up on a Google search, the first thing that comes up is the registry. So um, it needs to be reworked. And a key piece of that is to have a registry board where really the brain trust of the state reviews all the cases to determine who should be on the registry and who shouldn't, because it really, really highly restricts people's ability to live at all. And the recidivism rates for all people who have committed a sex crime is 4%. People have the myth in their head that if you've done it once, you'll do it again. And that is absolutely not true. And there is a certain formula that makes people successful. And one of them is accountability and treatment. And so if you see somebody, if somebody commits a, a, sex, a crime with a sexual component or a sex crime, you're seeing the tip of the iceberg. What really is wrong and what their distress and um, stress is, is underneath the water. And that's what the treatment about. It's getting at the deeper issues. Often problem sexual behavior is a symptom. It's not the underlying issue. It's a social disorder. It can be seen as an emotional disorder. When I hear you talk about changing how the registry goes, I imagine that so many people hear that and feel like these people deserve to have their lives be as miserable as possible and as difficult as possible. The list should not change. I want to know anyone who's on the list and they should be on it if they're on it. And that's that. Why do you think that is a common reaction to the sex offender registry? It's seriously, like unlike many other offenses, the visceral reaction to being on the registry is that strong. There's a strong public reaction, which I can understand because I am repulsed, as is any human being, that someone would harm a child. And whether you're a parent or not, I think the public has a responsibility to protect all kids. The way it does not serve us is it puts us in a position of absolute rejection for another human being that we don't know or we don't understand. And that polarization, as we've seen in the broader public sphere, is very destructive to American life. 
the demonization of the other, objectifying them and rejecting them wholeheartedly without knowing them is very destructive, I think, to communities and to the human race. We need to see each other as full, complicated human beings. No matter what your political affiliation, no matter you know what your past is, objectification is very destructive. Mary Kate Huffman, she's a, a conservative Republican appellate judge in Ohio. She wrote a brilliant paper about this moral panic, which you're referring to as the visceral reaction, the moral panic. And I got to tell you, you know, John Walsh and some of these predator shows really elevated the anxiety of the public that there's all these predators out there lurching in the bushes. But that's just not true. Ninety six percent of children are molested, they're molested by someone that they know. And one of the reasons kids don't often tell is because they care about the person that harms them and they don't want anything to happen to that person. And that's where, you know, the Boy Scouts had a proliferation of sexual abuse against children, people who parents trusted, the Catholic church with priests, there was an absolute trust in priests. And so that deification of certain people gave people the ability to deny the truth that they may be the very ones that are harming your kids. The church, like the one place that you're supposed to trust is the one place where you're the most vulnerable, where you can be the most vulnerable. Right. But re, but a good predator picks the kid who doesn't have a father, whose mother's overwhelmed, whose mother needs the help and the support after school. And so he takes him, he makes him an altar boy. I mean, it's a very common process, the grooming process to get a child to acquiesce or submit to sexual contact. And it's a little, little, little bit at a time. You know, all predators work the same. I don't care if you're a domestic violent guy, if you're a pedophile, if you're, um, what's his name, Bundy? Ted. Um, Ted Bundy. Not Al. It's all, <laughs> it's all the same. You identify some vulnerability, you compliment, ingratiate, charm, and then you begin a relationship with the impression that you're trustworthy. And then once that person trusts you, you bring them closer and closer and closer with, a, with gifts, with drugs, with alcohol, with some secret. Like, you know, the neighbor or the Boy Scout leader or whatever who gets the 12-year-old to have sex with him, it starts with, let's smoke a little weed together. And then there's the secret. And then if you tell your mother, I'm going to tell her you're doing drugs or I'm going to report you to the police. It's it's very sophisticated. It's sophisticated and it's also predictable when that pattern is happening. Oh, it's very predictable. Yeah. <laughs> this episode is not going to make me feel better about the world. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I understand that. I understand that. Let's talk about some takeaways. I know there's a lot of parents who are 
very uncomfortable listening to this show today. Um, what do those parents keep in mind as they've got their little kids running around? What what should parents be looking for and really worried about if they're going to worry about something happening? 99% of kids are molested by someone that they know. And the things to be concerned about are if someone takes an unusual interest in your child, if someone wants to spend time alone with the child, the answer is no. But how do you know something's going on? When their behavior is extremely out of character. When they're not eating at all, when they're overeating, when they're sleeping constantly, when they're up all night, like those extremes are an indication that something is wrong. And some people think that their children's room is their sanctuary. I don't believe that. I think that parents have a responsibility to dig in if they have a concern. And it's common for kids to want to be with peers as teenagers instead of their parents. But I think that the center of a kid's life should be their home. It should not be with, with their friends. Their friends, absolutely part of their lives, important parts of their lives. But home is where the heart is. And it might seem slightly conservative. I mean, I am not a conservative person. I'm very, very progressive and very liberal in my ideas um, and in my lifestyle. But you know what? You only have one shot to raise your kids. Well, Eileen Redden, thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, Kelly Langevin, Missy Carvalho, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Special thanks to Tim Rasmussen and Colin McEnroe for their input on this episode. Send me your reactions on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>